All right. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Alexander Bard, philosopher, writer. Um, anything else you'd like to throw into the introductory mix about yourself, a little bio or anything? Or No, it should be interesting that you mentioned writer together with philosopher, uh -huh. because since Socrates, all philosophers have been writers. Uh, I suspect that Jordan Hall is set to become the first philosopher in Socrates who refuses to write a book. Uh, he, he seems to be really intent on doing his entire philosophical career through podcasting. So I wish Jordan good luck on that one. But yes, I'm a writer. I'm, I've written five books with John Söderqvist. We're working on a sixth book at the moment. Uh, this is probably going to be our last book because like Hegel will then have written six books. Uh, but then after that, we probably stay with what's called commentaries. You know, mm. once we've established our philosophy in six books, the ambition for me and John is, is to stay with commentary and probably go into collaborations with other thinkers as well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, one of those books I'd love to delve into a little bit today is this one, uh, Synthism creating God in the internet age, but I'm sure we'll bounce around quite a bit. Um, but mainly, yeah, the, the topic I'd love to get into is synthism um, and its relationship with metamodernism. Um, so to, at the outset, I'd love to just sort of ask a few kind of frustratingly remedial questions uh, for those of our viewers who might not know about synthism or have any idea about it. Would you just kind of explain in whatever way you feel you'd like to um, Give a little description of synthism. Okay, so what John Söderqvist and I did was that we wrote a, a trilogy called the Futurica trilogy first, three books, where we established the relationship between man and machine. So we firmly believe that human beings really haven't changed that much over the last five or 10,000 years. Uh, we basically just settled and got fat and more stupid. But we've created something called technology. And what we call civilization is this interplay between man and machine. So technology is essentially what has progressed uh, over the last five to 10,000 years. And, and now technology is taking off, you know? So obviously we're going into um, an even more radical age than the one we've been in before. So we, we explore that in three books. That was the Futurica trilogy. And we, we were okay with that. And then we sort of quit our day jobs, um, decided to quit absolutely everything else and, and go into that question even deeper and therefore write a second trilogy. And that's the one we're working on at the moment. And, and in the spirit of Hegel, we decided to first write the book on the future. And the book on the future, we, we go way into the future. Like how, how, could, how far could you possibly go when you go into the future and explore the future? And that is this book that you just mentioned there, Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. So where would the Internet Age eventually lead? Where are we heading, right? Then we wrote a really dramatic book about the times we live in, the sort of apocalyptic times we live in at the moment, which is a paradigm shift. We're moving from industrialism to informationalism. Even more so, we're moving from capitalism to attentionalism. And this is dramatic, you know, uh, in, in aspects. There are dramatic aspects of this that we need to look into. And, and, and it's a very tough book. It, it's a very dark book about the age we live in. So that was Digital Libido, Sex, Power, and Violence in, in, in the Network Age. And that, that's, the, that's the second book in the series. And after we've written Synthesis and Digital Libido, we're then going to go into the rewriting of history. So the rewriting of history is the third book. We spent the last five years working on it. We need at least another year before it's finished. But that last third book is going to be called Process and Event. And it's eventually, it's eventually going to be a rewriting of the history of the East, of the West, 
and of digital as this merger between West and East and technology when everything in the world is sort of crashing into one another. And therefore we have to rewrite history to try to understand our current situation better. Um, so eventually this is going to lead into a lecture series where we sort of get it right again and start a process event then go into digital libido and finally end up with synthesis, as most people would probably expect you to do if you look at it in a more linear fashion. But, but I should say that it was when we started exploring where we're heading. I mean, if we think of technology as the development over the last 5,000 years, the thing that has actually progressed, because the thing with technology is that you optimize uh, processes all the time. So you're an engineer, right? You basically take everything apart every morning and then you put it together again, but then you also try to optimize that process while you do that. So engineering innovation is essentially discovering how you can make a process more efficient or maybe use cheaper materials and get better results at the end of the day and therefore create a superior product. And, and that's what technology does. Um, it does so both in the East and in the West in this way. Japan or China is no different from Europe or America. So we can all agree that this is the basic assumption of what technological innovation is. Uh, but the question is then, so what happens then to us and our ideas? And, and Söderqvist and I are very convinced actually that if we take the opposite technology, which would be religion, then religion has gone the other way over the last 5,000 years. Religion was probably really great during the Bronze Age. Then the Axial Age came along with all kinds of little pillar saints and boy pharaohs and things. And they have all kind of really big ideas on how human beings should be improved on. You know, we're not big fans of Plato, that's for sure. You know, Plato's Republic is, you know, if anything is even worse than, than Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler, it would be Republic by Plato. You know, that, that's, that's the division we put Plato in. Wow. And, uh, and, and so what we want to emphasize is that the Bronze Age was a golden era for constructing, for constructing things. And we love engineers and we love traders in our work. We think the Silk Route is the most magnificent building product of human history. And that wasn't done today or yesterday. The Silk Road was built thousands of years ago and lasted for thousands of years. And those are the constructions we were seriously interested in. So when the Axial Age came along, which of course philosophers have talked grandly about for almost 3000 years because philosophers came to the forefront during the Axial Age. But Söderqvist and I hate our own kind in the sense that we think engineers and traders are actually way more important to human beings than philosophers are. And therefore we are the philosophers who defend the engineers and the traders of history. So we think the Bronze Age was fantastic. After that, we all went down with the Axial Age. You know, all the big ideas that human beings really need, like civilization itself, permanent settlement as different from a nomadic movement, um, empires, what an empire could possibly be, a nation, what a nation could possibly be. All those ideas were developed during the Bronze Age. Not after, but during the Bronze Age. They were only then written down during the Axial Age in well, different perverted forms. But, but uh, yeah. basically the idea is that technology has gone up and religion has gone down over the last 5,000 years. So what if we try to rethink religion and theology as a deeper form of philosophy and then say, so what if we just redo religion the way we did technology, merge the two, and that is the idea of synthesis. Okay, awesome. That's really helpful. So here, here's a question then, because I, I find this really interesting. You're sort of suggesting that there is this inverse uh, kind of relationship that's been developing over, well, since the Bronze Age. Technology 
uh, developing human beings and our our nature, our our kind of software, either stagnating or declining. Um, I'm really curious about that because I wanted to ask you about developmental uh, theories and approaches and what you uh, make of them. If you find any anything uh, useful there, and it sounds like you're almost an anti-developmentalist. You're you're sort of a uh, uh, humanity um, has been regressing. Um, and I guess I'd be curious to know how in the scheme of Synthios, which is the utopia that you talk about that we're striving forward, that we're, that we're aiming to create, which is, which is God um, in some ways, um, is that not something that we should be developing toward? Or are you trying to kind of reset things so that we are kind of back on a developmental track. Um, does that question make sense? Or maybe I'm misframing some of your ideas. Yeah, but I don't do should. <laughs> I don't do morality at all. Um, I think philosophers are better when they're more descriptive. Uh, and, and one of my really strong ethical convictions, I'm a Zoroastrian, by the way, converted to Zoroastrianism. And one of my strong ethical convictions is that I don't want to change people. I think problems start when one guy wants to change the other guy because it's just narcissism. Uh, I, 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 think, I think I can firmly lay the case for people so they can alter themselves or affect themselves in different ways. And I certainly want other people. If I get a PT, you know, when I go to the gym, I hire somebody to present the case for me where I can actually affect myself in a positive way. But I make that decision. I take full responsibility for that myself. So I would say that I'm, I'm, not, into, I'm not in the should business. I, I, I believe in enlightenment. I believe people can be more or less enlightened. I believe in knowledge. I, be, I believe we gather knowledge to become smarter and to make wiser decisions in our lives. And that's also why we also like to grow older because we know when we're young, we have energy. But as we grow older, we actually have more life experience. And that's why we go to older people and ask for advice. So that's deeply human. Now, I'd say the problem is that we become so dependent on technology. And I don't mind that. I'm not moralizing. I'm just, I'm just saying that's a fact. We are homo technologicals today. So we're completely dependent on technology. And this really kicks in when we start to write down shit. So instead of just having to memorize absolutely everything and then having an absolute limit how much memory we can access, which is our own brain, we can start to write down things and store those things. And those things can then survive us. And the whole idea that the son could possibly create a better world than the father had created because the son has access to more information than the father did is the very foundation of civilization. And that idea was written down about 1700 before Christ by Zoroaster in ancient Persia. And that changed this world history forever. It's also the foundation of the West. The West starts with the Persians and the Jews, not with the Greeks and the Jews. And eventually the Greeks and the Romans and the Arabs and everything else catch on later. But the West is really west of the Gobi Desert and the idea that the event can occur and the event can change history forever. Whereas the East, both India and China and Japan, stay with the idea that there's only process and process and more process. And the occasional event that might happen will still be absorbed by the process and will be delusional at the end of the day. 
So even if you're, even if you try to be a Nietzsche in India, say Sri Aurobindo tried that, but even Sri Aurobindo eventually says that, well, Nietzsche failed because his Ubermensch was not an Ubermensch of love. You know, his Ubermensch wasn't feminine enough for his taste to actually make sense. And, and that is where the matriarch always returns to the Chinese and Indian fantasy and why they find this Persian, Jewish, Greek ideal of the event so utterly strange. And this way, the book we're working on, it's called Process and Event. We're lovingly going to Chinese and Indian and Japanese philosophy and discuss what does process mean. And then we go into the, the West, which properly done is process and event. It's not event without process. Event without process is the failure of Christianity and Islam. But I think you can create a philosophy that includes both process and event, and then we'll probably nail it right finally. Well, so but the, possi the possibility for the event, the possibility for the improvement of civilization actually rests in the fact that we get more stupid. We use less of our own brain. We store more information outside of the own brain. Not only do we store it beyond our own death, we start dreaming about the potential of transcendence because if we die and then something survives us that other people can use, we've contributed beyond, beyond our own death, more than just giving birth to children. We contributed something more than that. And that the name of that is technology. Technology would pass on to the next generation so they can possibly improve the world. And that is a fantastic dream. So we become more stupid, but the world becomes smarter. And the world becomes smarter because we become more and more dependent on technology. So we have really for 5,000 years worked on creating a machinery outside of our own brains that eventually will become smarter than our own brains are together. All right. Well, so let's I want to dive into some of that, though. Um, don't you would you not agree that there is a dialectic relationship between the human being and then the technology that we create and then how we become influenced by and maybe even co-evolve with that technology so that it doesn't seem to me anyway that human beings just remain static, maybe physiologically, generally speaking, we're the same as we were, you know, a uh, hundred thousand years ago. But consciousness and uh, the, the, the modes that uh, are capable uh, to be accessed by human beings because of the developments that you're talking about, like living in a literate society versus an illiterate one or living in a, a society that now has, you know, access to basically any book ever written at my fingertips. Don't you think that these things then have a kind of a feedback cycle into the, into the, the physiology um, in some ways of people who who are engaging with them, that then there is something that changes about human consciousness. Yeah, sometimes? we'd love that for be the case. But you know what? This is a bit, I don't think racism is the biggest problem today. I think generationism is the biggest problem. So, so imagine, for example, you and I are two white guys. We might even both like to sleep with women or whatever. I don't know. But you could have some of these credentials like we're talking about this. And, and there's no black gay guy in the room, although we would love for a black gay guy to be here. But there isn't. Right. So we can talk about black gay guys because they're not us. And we can start eventually developing the idea that we're somehow superior just because we're having a dialogue and the black guy isn't here. Right. The same is the problem with generations. Now, imagine if you and I were sitting here having this conversation. That, well, after all, we have co-evolved with technology and us. Technology has progressed and you and I have progressed. And therefore, we are superior to people who lived 3,000 years ago. And then I would let an Egyptian guy walk into the room who speaks the same language as us, hopefully. And he'd be joining the conversation. He would just put us both to shame because he would have memorized way more than you and I have. 
Well, he, okay. he would have written down without having access to the printing press. He so, wouldn't have the internet. He would. He wouldn't have all the cheap charts. He wouldn't yeah. have all the quick fixes. He wouldn't have all the shortcuts that you and I have. He would completely put us into smithereens, and we would discover actually how, how dangerous it is for being in the situation. I learned this the hard way by living with Aboriginals, for example, in the Brazilian Amazon. And just going hunting with them one day and realized that I just wanted to sit in the corner somewhere and smoke a cigar and hide from the whole hunt with the leopards and everything. Because, you know, I'd be dead in a second if they didn't protect me. I, and seems... that, re that really put me in the mood yeah. where I realized, that, no, no, I, th I think it's better to say that we live under very specific cultural circumstances with a very specific technological environment around us right now. And if we were dropped outside of this environment, you and I, we wouldn't even survive. So I think it's much more humble to say we haven't co-evolved at all. If anything, if I would put your and my brain in a brain scan today compared to an Egyptian from 3000 years ago, his brain would probably way more active, you know, because just for survival reasons, whereas you and I would have had the luxury not to have such an active brain and our brain would probably be less active than his. So I'd, I'd say it's much more humble in this way to speak about generationism, that that's problematic, but I don't care because in my philosophy, it isn't man alone that counts. It is the man and machine combo that counts. And the man and machine combo obviously can do a lot more today than the man and machine combo could have done 3,000 years ago. And on this, the Egyptian would undoubtedly agree. So okay. that, I think, is the case for civilization. So, yeah, the reason why I bring this up is because I'm, I'm interested in exploring um, questions related also to, to consciousness. I know you're talking about technology, but I'm, you know, I'm interested in the ways that maybe these things are you know, in a symbiotic relationship, and as technology uh, develops, maybe consciousness develops in line. It sounds like you don't agree with that. To jump back to a few things you were just saying, I think this is also an interesting moment to bring in the connection with synthism and metamodernism, uh, because... Yeah, yeah, but, but, wait, 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 wait. Sure. Let's go with consciousness first. Consciousness is incredibly overrated. Well, can I, yeah, so can and, I, can and, I, and I... The problem I have with all this consciousness talk today is that I call it the Californian ideology. It's just that it's really, really nice to sell a lot of sort of new age stuff to people to, to, to enhance their self. You know, after the self-help book, the next thing you sell people is that your consciousness is fantastic. And by the way, your consciousness doesn't need to work on itself at all to be a fantastic consciousness. It's just there. So, so I would say I'm, I'm totally in favor, like Freud was, that subconsciousness is way more interesting than consciousness and the subconscious that we're not aware of the subconscious it was operates all the time and consciousness is mostly just the afterthought the sort of the after construction of the subconscious behaviors that we do as human beings and therefore we ascribe that to consciousness now i'm a fan of mind I'm a huge fan of mind and theory what's, of What's mind. the difference between mind and consciousness? I also, oh, I just don't oh, want to avoid... Enormous. enormous. Okay, well, there's, no self, there's no self mind. There's self-consciousness. Consciousness, consciousness okay, is tied let's... to the self. Uh -huh. The idea of consciousness is definitely tied to the self, whereas mind is just something that operates and doesn't need a self necessarily. Okay, well, let's, so, let's come yeah. back to this because I want to just, I want to address uh, the point that you made about the Egyptian being in the room and whatnot. And I just wanted to, you know, also have this locus here where metamodernism enters the discussion too, because I'm not sure, have you read the Hanzi books, um, Listening Society in particular? Oh yeah, they're, they're my students. Okay, <laughs> they yeah. Do everything, so, they do everything that they can to upset me. So they're great, great <laughs> friends. Right. So, so yeah. sure. Yes. So one of the points that Hanzi makes, right, is the, the difference between 
code and and uh, and stage, right? So he brought he makes exactly the point you just talked about. He uses the idea of say Thomas Aquinas and an eighth grader, right? Thomas Aquinas didn't have access to, I don't know, let's just say calculus, right? But then a high schooler does. Well, there's a that doesn't mean that a high schooler is somehow you know oh so much smarter than Thomas Aquinas was. But at the same time, that high schooler does have access to a whole uh, field, a whole realm of human knowledge that w- didn't exist at the time of Aquinas. And that's a meaningful distinction, I feel like, that we can, that we can make. And, you know, that's technology. The ter- that's the technology for you. That's okay, exactly but, then, what it is. but then that Mathem- technology Mathematics gets in embodied. is the foundation of technology. Sure. So there you go. But then the question would be, to what degree does living in a society where calculus is a given, how does that change the human psyche living in that environment? And of course, it's not just calculus. It's everything that calculus creates. It's everything that comes from that. I mean, so the, 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 the cultural code in which calculus exists is a different cultural code than the medieval era in which Thomas Aquinas was living. And I feel like however smart an Aquinas could be is not going to be able to engage certain realms of reality by limitations of cultural code. And so cultural code does evolve over time. And that's what I'm just kind of curious about, you know, in, in the, in the example yeah, that you're yeah, giving sure, us sure. to account lots, for that. Lo- yes, but yeah, but lots of code is forgotten. A lot of code we should use today no longer is around. So at the end of the day, your brain can process a certain amount of information and the brains have not grown over the last 5,000 years. If anything, they've shrunk. So the problem is that we do lose certain information and we lose certain knowledge and certainly we lose a lot of wisdom over time. So Thomas Aquinas knew a lot of things that you're not even close to knowing today. So I think what we do is that we do trade-offs, right? And we think we make these trade-offs, we hopefully do them for the better, but we are actually losing a lot of knowledge. So for example, I'm a Zoroastrian. So Hegel and Nietzsche studied Zoroastrianism it was high fashion in Germany in the early 19th century to read and study Avesta next to Sanskrit. So you not only understood ancient Indian culture, but you could also understand ancient Persian culture. I knew hardly any scholars today who bothered to learn Sanskrit and Avesta properly. That means Hegel and each have a superior understanding of the original text in Sanskrit and Avesta than any of the Nietzschean or Hegelian students that I run across today. That is that, that is that you, you have to you have to real I, I think it's much better to be humble and realize we do trade-offs all the time. So we are actually saying that certain things no longer are not as valuable as they were to us, and other things have become more valuable. So we learn those things instead. For example, we meta learn a lot more than we learn these days. So we can name drop fewer things today than we used to, but we know where to find out more information about a certain word. And that's where we use the internet and that's where we hyperlink and you know, we do all these things. So, so life is just very different. Okay. That's all this is very, very and, different. And, and, and I think that's, that's important to stress here before mm-hmm. we go into any idea that we have a superior civilization to anything before. I think that's really dangerous. And sure. Right and I, for the record, I was never trying to make the argument that we have a superior civilization to anything in the past. I'm just trying, I'm interested in uh, development of, well, consciousness, both at the personal level in terms of how can I grow as a human being and learn more, understand more. I mean, I think that that's key to philosophy, to religion, theology, the depth, the growing and depth of awareness um, and a spiritual practice. Um, And 
at the same time, I, I'm intrigued by the ways in which as, an, as people in societies engage in these spiritual practices or theological or philosophical practices to try to deepen their understanding and their awareness and their, and their um, let's just say, consciousness, for lack of a better word, that that might have uh, emergent effects that can be recognized in the society at large. Because one of the things that's interesting to me about synthism is that you're talking about the creating the creation of God in the internet age. You're talking about the moving in the in the direction of utopia, um, and that to me suggests it's a framework. And I'm sure we can. I mean, I'd love to talk about this, but the usual framework in which those kinds of ideas are uh, engaged is in the sort of eschatological kind of teleological. You know, we're heading somewhere. So there is kind of a developmental framework that's implied in a lot of that. I think what you're talking about is you're not engaging with those ideas in that same way. So you're, you're throwing out a lot of this idea of, around the development maybe of human consciousness. You're throwing out the idea that consciousness itself yeah, is I, even- Yeah, I'm, I'm opposed to any idea of the development of human consciousness. I think it's nonsense. <laughs> okay. I think it's just infantile nonsense because people want to have huge egos and they're obsessed with themselves. And then we meet somebody else obsessed with himself too. And these two guys go into a conversation and they think there's the God's gift to mankind because of their consciousness. This is the problem with contemporary society. This okay. is not the way you saw. This is where we got where we are. And this yeah. is digital libido. If you read that book, you will discover that the infantility, the mass infantilism of the world after 1945 is deeply problematic. And it's caused by a lot of huge blown up egos that simply by scratching each other's backs, the internet is good at this, scratching each other's backs. They didn't believe in it even more. It's called inter-narcissism. So we hide our own narcissism behind flattering each other. And by flattering each other and tipping off each other, if, if, if I tell people that I've read your book, although I didn't, then you can pretend that you read my book, although you didn't. And then we can both sell more books to idiots who actually believe we read each other's books. And, and this is the inter-narcissism we have today. So I'm, I'm actually against that. I, I, I think it's better to look at it this way. Uh, I turn on my dishing machine and I turn on my washing machine and I'm a stupid idiot. I have no idea how these machines work, but the dishing machine makes my kitchen clean in seconds, right? And the washing machine makes my laundry clean in seconds. And I don't have to do the hand laundry or how to do the hand dishes. And I save hours every day because I save those hours. I can sit here with you and have a beautiful conversation and we can then go into our respective consciousnesses. And we can have a fantastic dialogue between two brothers who are friends, and we can do the things that we love doing the most, which in the case of you and me, because we're nerds, happen to be philosophy. Well, I, find, now, I, think, I, that, I yeah. think that's a more humble way to look at the world, because at the end of the day, these incremental improvements there are the foundational civilizations are not made by little California narcissists. They're made by hardworking uh, engineers and hardworking traders who then improve on products and services constantly every day by working very hard on doing that. And it's actually in our environment around us that we then set aside more and more time for us to be more and more playful. And we can then use more and more of that time to play. And when we play, we discover that it's actually quite fun to play with the idea that I have a consciousness and so do you. I, and then we meet and yeah. then we date and then we make friends and then we have lovers I, and then all kinds of things that are fantastic. Yeah. All right. So I'm finding this really interesting because I feel like we're we're sort of almost at diametric odds here because as you're you're making the, the point that that everything since you know 1945 and the post-war era 
where we find ourselves in this, you know, meta crisis of ecological and just like basically apocalyptic collapse, that that owes to overemphasizing consciousness and de-emphasizing technology. And I would say it's just the opposite, that it's everything Who that you're- Who discovered climate change? Uh, well, everyone knows Greta, Greta. The uh, internet. Thunder. I'm just kidding. The inter- um, yeah. yeah. No, the internet did. It was precisely because we started putting sensors around the world and got the data sure. and improved on our metrological science, which was just a guessing game and started to become a science because of improved and increased data. Again, technology. It was technology itself that showed us that there were changes in the climate that weren't just the regular historical changes, but actually could be attributed to human behavior. Yeah, and I'm not, was, I'm not trying to denigrate. One of the first things the internet did for us was that it exposed us to a problem that we needed to solve. Sure. And if you take another huge problem, like is how do you lock up atomic bombs and then, then, then don't throw them into your enemy's head and thereby kill all of humanity, well, still nuclear warfare is a major threat to us. And we all know that the only way we can lock up those nukes so they don't become more problematic by using technology to do it. That, that whole system, that whole idea is called sensocracy. Sensocracy is the way forward because we cannot solve the atomic bomb problem and we cannot solve the climate change problems without craving even more technologies can help us solve those problems. Yeah. No, I was just trying to frame what I thought could be a fruitful kind of exploration here because I think that we're not probably as, as uh, far apart on these issues as that framing suggested. So I wanted to kind of, because I'm also not trying to suggest, oh, technology is bad. I'm just saying that I, if I were to kind of put my finger on uh, the, the biggest source of the issues that, are, that kind of underlie our, our ecological crisis, for example, it would be the sort of exponential explosion of all these technologies that, you know, that, that um, allow us to do what you're saying and not have to think about washing the dishes um, and sort of play all the time without having and sort of and sort of hiding the costs of all that. But I, I would I'd be interested for you to say maybe more about your thoughts about consciousness and uh, and technology, because I feel like in those terms well, is probably you, if we you just laid it them. out here. I mean, yeah. a, a decent consciousness would at least take responsibility for the fact that humans cause the problems that we're stuck with and don't blame it on the technology itself. Technology, after all, is what we do with it, right? We're still in control of the technology, even if it increasingly controls us. So this is becoming a really intertwined phenomenon. No, let's go back then to the idea of synthesis and then the idea of metamodernism and why we're both so interested in these two terms and why they're so creative. Uh, Synthesis is essentially the idea that God is a good word to use because God is the ultimate. And we have no better word for the ultimate. So say, if you and I would sit, sit down together and discuss dreams, what we dream about the most, and what could possibly sometimes in the future, whether in our lifetime or not, if something could happen that would really, really strike us as a worthy goal to work towards, that would give us purpose and meaning with everything we do in our lives. Now, now there's no better word for that if that's a shared point. There's no better word for that than God. Mm-hmm. So for example, that's the idea of the exodus of the Bible. It's the idea that God is not here. He's not in Egypt. There's so many gods here, but the God we're looking for is not here. And the God, like the God of the future, is not here. So the first synthesis were really the Jews in, or the Hebrews in Egypt, who then said that, well, God is somewhere else. And we call that point the promised land. And just establish that there is God somewhere and it's not here. And that place is called the promised land. The place where God lives must be where we're going to build the temple. So we're going to make an exodus and leave Egypt and then go out of Egypt and go somewhere else. And then we're going to build the temple. And there we're going to establish the new. 
It doesn't mean that we look down on the old, but it means that the old is Egypt. And for those who are comfortable and want to stay in this paradigm, which is Egypt, some of us want to walk out of here believing in a different idea, and we want to explore that idea and go somewhere else and explore that idea. This, of course, the journey from polytheism to monotheism. It is the idea from going towards an empire that, that, that is totalitarian, towards creating some kind of nation that could be closer to tribal and therefore more responsible towards its participants. So the idea is to create a religion that unites a nation. That's an incredibly strong idea. This is the beauty of Judaism. So it was then they practiced it, and that's exactly why the Exodus story is so, so great. And what we would do today, for example, is we would say that, okay, so we're stuck in a current mess here, both globally and locally. Human beings are mostly local, machines intend to be more global, but there's a relationship between man and machines, so it's a global local thing we're working with. Now, what if we start imagining that the world could be different from what it is? It could, could just be different. It doesn't have necessarily to be better, but at least to some people, it would be preferable and more interesting, simply because it's more novel. Okay. That's an exodus. And an exodus doesn't have to be geographical. An exodus can also be paradigmatic. An exodus could be from one time to another time. So say we want to take the internet and its full potential seriously. We don't want to do like people do so far, which is basically they throw themselves into the internet age, but they take all the values with them from the previous capitalist age, and therefore they don't get it. So they do all the things wrong with essentially the mess we're in right now in 2021. What if we just start looking at the technology itself and its full potential, and it's full potential for us as human beings. And then some of us really devote ourselves and say that we're going to do the internet properly and we're going to maximize the man-machine relationship in the internet age. Now, you don't have any other name for that than God. And this is the beauty of it because we've obviously torn down God, thrown him out, atheism and everything is declared God is dead. Well, essentially, you said to Krishna are saying, well, that's a good word to use then because if God is now thrown out and declared over and he's not in any longer, but rather he's out and the fashion dictates that we should all be proud atheists by now, then we're just saying that, well, that's kind of a bad idea. You can keep God. You just take God from the past and say he never existed, but it doesn't mean he cannot exist. We just put him into the future. This is the idea of synthesis. The idea is that the God we always claimed was in the past wasn't there. We've gotten used to that idea. We even gotten used in a Nietzschean fashion to the freedom that comes with the idea that God was never there. Now, what if we use that freedom to instead create the God that we prefer? Because it turns out the way technology is developing at the moment without a certain consciousness of that process we will probably develop a God that will destroy us. It would probably be preferable if this God that we're creating, Synthios, if the Synthios was actually co-created by the smartest and wisest human beings who put both their creativity and their wisdom into that process. And this is when it gets really interesting because when we get the certain awareness of this, which we call Synthiology, the idea that we actually start to design God before God occurs. Until God has arrived, we have the possibility of designing him. So we're now doing our 40-year journey through the desert. We've left the capitalist age. We walked into the tensionalist, informationalist age. We've done so, you and I have certainly done so fully and embraced it. We're now on our journey. And while we're on the journey, we can actually design God by designing the very temple, the container within which we will put God when he arrives. Yes, I love that. That's exactly what drew me to your work. And, and, and so let's 
let's uh, di dive in a little bit more to that um, at the risk of reopening our previous can of worms, but maybe in a fruitful way. Uh, would you do you feel like it's a misnomer or a, a misframing of those ideas to express it as saying that our pre our, we had a conception of God as being at the beginning as being sort of this mythical figure. And now that idea itself has developed so that now we're thinking of it as God is at the end and we are co creating and designing that and but the word God is what unites both of those things, despite them being different concepts, but that one is is arguably uh, has a greater utility, a greater uh, usefulness and practicality and might lead to, you know, a better outcome or something like that. And thinking of that shift as being one of development, is, is that still an allergic way or does that? Yeah, because gonna... because it is Zoroastrianism and it is Hegelianism. So, so you don't see it's Zoroaster, not as, it's like, I would say you have three giant thinkers here that are important. Zoroaster, Aristotle and Hegel. And they have all three entertained this idea. If you start looking into their philosophy deeply, you discover that the synthesis idea was not something Yelsedikvist and I came up with. It wasn't some kind of increased consciousness. It's not that kind of a radical break. It's just that we see the potential for the ideas of Zoroaster, Aristotle and Hegel to become true because we now understand accumulated technology and accumulated information. And we understand that that's actually what civilization is. And yeah. it's now increasing in speed. So the potential for God to occur is suddenly becoming obvious to us. Yeah. But now, and similarly, could you view that the, the kind of, let's just say traditional notion of the promised land as being, you know, the state or the, at least the, the land of Israel that the, that the Hebrews went to and founded their, you know, kingship and, and temple there, that was that promised land. But in some ways you're taking that idea and metaphorically abstracting it to say, but it also does this thing at a kind of greater meta mytho, mythopoetic level. Again, couldn't, you view that as being sort of a development of that idea um, or it does viewing that, that through a developmental lens um, cause too many problems? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it has developed because uh, I seriously think there are only two really great ideas. The first one is called process and that's the East. That's India and China. That's everything returns to the same eternal recurrence of the same and all thinking in the nomadic world was process period. Okay, so this is called nomadology. The term is taken for Gilles Deleuze. So the nomadological worldview, which is Hinduism essentially, is that everything returns to the same and all change over time is delusional, okay? The only other idea is the Zoroastrian idea that later Aristotle and Hegel tie into. And this is the idea of the event something can happen that radically changes history forever and history is never the same. Mm -hmm. Now, if you seriously believe that the arrival of technology was an event, and if you seriously believe that that caused civilization to occur, and if you and I agree that we prefer to live within civilization than to go back into ultimate wilderness because it would kill us in a second, at least for you and me, we agree that civilization wasn't such a bad idea, so we're civilizationists, that's an event. Now, if God is going to occur one day, that would be like the ultimate event. I would say that mm -hmm. if you imagine the ultimate event into the future, I would say that 
the big bang or the big bounce, which is probably what it was, but the big bang or the kickstarting of physics was, was a huge event. Right? Then after that came the beginning of chemistry. That was another singularity, another huge event. And on, at least on this planet that we live on, the beginning of biology was obviously a an amazing event, right? We all agree that these singularities are really important to our history. Yeah, they're now, developments. It, I yeah. would argue. And, and, and you would probably subscribe that consciousness could even qualify. No, not development. They're emergences. They're not just yeah. develop, they're developments that suddenly something kicks in that completely right. changes everything forever. Yep. And, and you, you would probably argue that consciousness on the level, I would sort of sit back and say, hmm. No, I, but I would say the culture and civilization itself could qualify as an emergence on the level with biology. And we could just argue about that had different positions on that. That's perfectly okay. But when we start looking at this, we can then discuss history as these emergences that have occurred. And when you start thinking about them afterwards, you realize they're unthinkable before they happen. They're absolutely unthinkable before they happen. And that's why the only name we have for another singularity of that magnitude would be God. So, so here's, really, here's a really important question then. Is the God event in the future, uh, is that actually a possible event or is it a forever receding you know, goal that we, that the sort of carrot that's always receding that keeps us, keeps us developing or maybe again, not, but growing, changing, incre increasing novelty? You're it, clever now. This is really good. <laughs> okay. That, it's an interesting question. I think it has both, both aspects to it. In our philosophy, we're actually dividing the two. So we're talking about the Bard absolute. And that's not B-A-R-D, like my last name. That is a B-A-R-R-E-D, like a closed absolute. So um, Christianity and Islam tried to remove the Bard absolute. In Eastern religion, that's unthinkable. It's a difference between Sutra and Tantra. In Judaism, it's unthinkable. In Zoroastrianism, it's unthinkable. There are certain things you're never ready for. There are certain things you will never know. As a human being, you will not know everything, and you will not even know everything that human beings do, because other humans will be experts at things you'll not be an expert at. And, and that barred absolute. For example, as a child, you must have know what the adults are up to. And, and the same way in between adults, we have barred absolutes. And I think the barred absolute is that which were forever escapes us, which we might never know. So we might open the barred absolute and finally be ready to open it. But if you open anything that's sacred in that sense, you're pretty much bound to find another door in there that says there's another barred absolute you never get past. Okay, because yeah. the complexity of the world increases all the time. So th this is called the principle of explanatory closure. And, and, and Sadiqvist and I have written extensively about this principle. The, the principle of explanatory closure means that since the uh, amount of information in the universe increases way faster than any human being or any machine for that matter could catch up with, the barred absolute forever grows and becomes even stronger in our culture. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, God always escapes us and it could be good to keep the God word in that sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm also sure that the unthinkable in the sense that something could happen that forever strikes us as the most unimaginable thing that could ever happen, either as the worst thing ever, dystopian, or the best thing ever, more utopian, could certainly also happen. And I think we're dreaming about it today, and we must allow ourselves to dream about it today, because the sort of very existential problems that humanity is facing could possibly with some smart and clever humans, and certainly with a lot of AI and other machining thrown into the mix, possibly construct a system that'd be shockingly absurd or bizarre in a way, 
but suddenly could solve these problems for us. And if that system not only solves these major problems for us, so we can keep our brains busy with more playful and fun things, but also at the same time keeps a certain freedom and openness, which we'd hope for is it won't become total and utter tyranny, then that is the goal of the synthesis we're working towards. So when we mm-hmm. write about in the synthesis book, we say that the design of synthesis, the possibility we have to design synthesis, must include the idea that human beings are at their best in a society with freedom and openness. We know that for, as an historical fact, we know that tyranny makes us absolutely stupid. And we know that once we install tyranny in any system, for example, global tyranny, if that would happen, would be the ultimate disaster. So this, mm-hmm. we don't defend freedom and openness from a moralistic point of view. We just defend it from a simply survivalist point of view. Human beings survive longer and enjoy civilization more and longer if they can keep freedom and openness into their systems. So how does this um, relate to earlier on in our conversation, you were, you were kind of offering something of an encomium for the Bronze Age in which so many of these uh, persistent technologies kind of came online for the first time. But arguably in their Bronze Age iterations, they were much more oppressive, much more limited. Um, do the... Are you sure? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I used to study. I'm the sure you could areas. drive. I'm sure you could drive a car without getting a speeding ticket in Persia three thousand yes, years ago. I yes, mean, that's, I mean, if you I mean we, we we live in an incredibly <laughs> controlled society, and we 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 can afford to allow ourselves that the law is these days technologically implemented to make sure that we're even nudged to walk on the right side of the pavement these days, because otherwise these echo warriors out there who now are politically charged of us will go after us with their moralism, right? So now I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that was the case. I, I, I would look at the behavior. So I would look at behavior in terms of if you had the resources and the means and you had the ingenuity of people so they could actually completely invent new things, then you'd actually be surprised that how innovative people were 3,000 years ago and how much less of innovation we actually see today and how much of innovation today is dependent on technology itself collaborating with you when you innovate. So rather, it's a very different innovation process, I would say. Okay, well, so moving in then to some, some practical uh you know, things that people do rather than more theoretical frameworks of these things. When you talk about the designing of God and the co-creation of God, what, what does that look like? How do people do that? Are, are we doing it right now? We don't know it. Is it a very intentional, dare I say, conscious uh, endeavor? Um, what does creating God actually look like practically? Well, the Chinese are certainly doing it very consciously. Really? Chinese Communist Party, yeah. They love our ideas. And the reason why Yang Sedek is now don't give speeches in China is because we work with Taiwan. <laughs> it, it was a very, very easy decision for us to make. We got the offers. No, they love our ideas. I mean, I mean we are techno philosophers. So if you do a design technology, then you probably work with philosophers like us. So we're ingrained in technology and philosophy. And, and it's the combo that we work with all the time. No, the Chinese ensocracy is a totalitarian one. They don't believe in any other version of it. Deng Xiaoping was a genius. The Deng Xiaoping's idea was that China had something the West didn't have. China had the idea that all of society is included in religious mythology, and that's a good thing. I think the problem with the West that we're living with today is that the exploitative behavior of the West across the world that caused the current problems was because state and market were left outside of religion. So the weakness of Christianity is actually its limitation. 
I, I always return to the fact that Christianity is basically a, a religion about the mother and the child that excludes sex and violence because it doesn't like sex and violence. Then it leaves sex and violence outside of the religion and it leaves those things to state and market. The state and market were therefore developed over the last 1,600 years in the West separate from religion. I think that's a mistake. I think it's better to have three religions rather than one. So Deng Xiaoping's idea was that you could have Confucianism as the state religion. You could then allow the market to operate freely from that system. And you would then basically practice Taoism and the old Taoist traditions, which are perfect for market behaviors. And you could possibly even have a third religion called Buddhism, which is mother and child holding the other two systems responsible. And it's precisely within Buddhism and the Buddhist traditions in China and Japan and Korea that you've always seen the development of trying to unite the two other traditions. So Confucianism was replaced by Shintoism, for example, in Japan, took on a more nationalist version of it, but it's the same idea. So Deng Xiaoping thought that if we separate state and market here in China in the Chinese way, they'd still be operating under the wisdom of the elders in both cases, which would be corporations that basically are Taoist, and it would be a state-run system, a state bureaucracy that would operate in the Confucian manner. Okay, the problem was when Xi Jinping took over, he had none of the intellectual vigor of Deng Xiaoping, and decided instead to opt for a Stalinist revival, went to North Korea and came back in 2014, installed the dictatorship in China, where the state is now taking over the market. And if you look at the market movements and the Chinese stock exchanges in 2021, and if you look at how they, like Germany once invaded Poland, have invaded Hong Kong in the last year, this is nothing but plain stupidity. The Chinese system is now turning inwards towards itself because it's now becoming strictly Confucian and a Confucian dictatorship by eliminating the idea that market forces could be good on their own. So what's happening is that you're going to see Chinese Communist Party careerists move into the offices of the tech companies of China, pretty much like woke politicians are forcing themselves into corporations in America and Europe and thereby destroying them. So, so this, is, this is a problem we have today is that people come from politics and academia and think they get the market and therefore they try to take over market forces. So it's a similar problem in China and America and Europe. But the Chinese idea, the idea of the Chinese Communist Party is by installing censors everywhere, you basically construct a police state. And that police state goes all the way up to a certain guy at the top called Xi Jinping. And who's Xi Jinping? Well, he wants to be the personification of Cynthia's. So, so the Chinese certainly have their idea. We owe them a response. And that's why Sodiqvist and I work in India, we work in Korea, we work in Japan, we work in Taiwan. We work a lot in Asia. So is, and is, we work there to try to find yeah. an, an Indian-Japanese model that keeps the freedom and the openness and therefore institutes power sharing from day one. So you split up the power from day one. So a system like Xi Jinping's becomes impossible. So is, is the creation of God inherently geopolitical or is it something that individuals do for no, the, themselves? The creation, the creation of God is that you create a system. Once you wake up one morning, you discover you're inside that system. You can't get out. That, is that system the, is called a sensocracy. Uh-huh. And we will all live as sensocracies in the future. Hopefully several ones that are competing rather than just one. But it could be one sensocracy for the entire planet. So, but again, though, to, to what are some what are some ways that I 
can engage in in synthiology that I can engage the process of creating God in the internet age are are the are the dynamics that you're talking about kind of purely emergent macro dynamics or maybe only reserved for people with immense amounts of power who can install these sort of you know sensocracies or is there something that we in a decentralized um, kind of uh, collective way can do together um, Again, I'm, I'm oh 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 I get it. This isocracy would be incredibly meritocratic. So imagine that uh, you have a first little self growing out of a first sign of God having a self here. Like like the internet eventually develops to a point where there's a first cell of self. It might be very, very rudimentary, but because of its enormous technological power, because it probably by then has access to enormous amount of, of amounts of cheap electricity. The, the abundance cheap electricity is going to be the biggest revolution we've ever seen. And that's gonna that's gonna be the energy flow into all of this. So we will probably have say nuclear fusion power much faster than we think because if you think the problem with nuclear fusion power has always been a design problem, then design problems are the first thing that AI will solve for us. So how you should actually build a really fast functioning nuclear fusion power with both laser beams and magnets in it that can then produce enormous amounts of cheap, abundant electricity at all times. So you can basically water the entire Sahara because of desalinated water. Those ideas will explode in the next 50 to 100 years. So that, that's how we will see God. We will see God clearly come out of technology. Yeah. Like technology would do that. It's not just going to take off in a rocket and take Richard Branson's old body into space, uh -huh. but it, that's just the beginning of what we're seeing happening right now. And that is where change happens and, and it's mesmerizing and it, the novelty of it and, and, and the fantastic qualities of it will certainly pull us in and seduce us. So that will undoubtedly happen. Now, imagine that that little God self there starts to occur here. It will then spread all this glitter over the world and the change will look better. And if it can also solve major existential threat problems like climate change and where to lock up atomic bombs, all the better, right? So it, it can do those things. Once it does those things, then the question is, who among human beings would this God self like to hang out with? It's the most straightforward ethical question we can ask ourselves today. If God would materialize, who would God like to hang out with? What he would like to hang out with generous people? Fun people, creative people, people who do their best, you know, and people who who lift up their friends to also do their best. You know, it would be it would be very ethical. He wouldn't like to hang out with people who are victims. He wouldn't like out to be people who blame everybody else for their own faults and defects and are lazy and don't want to do anything about it. So the problem is for all these guys who run around being woke these days is that when you seriously ask yourself, what's the problem with woke? It's a bit like you're not really prepared if God walks in here and it's going to take some guys off to the promised land because the guys that will be invited to what we call an autocracy, say an elite of people in the digital age, these are the very people who are giving away things that are generous and creative and are not really interested in promoting themselves at all times, but rather create new tribes, new sort of digital subcultures that actually thrive and that actually lift other people. These are the very qualities that ethics have taught us for the past 3,000 years. These will be the qualities that God itself will look for and will be incredibly meritocratic. Well, so this yeah. is why we, why we talk about archetypes. Find what kind of person you are and optimize that kind of personality. Just like, for your own good, but also for the good of other people and for machines that yeah. surround you. I'd be curious. So like when Nietzsche, um, after well, in some ways, while proclaiming the death of God, creates a text like 
Thus Spoke Zarathustra, in which in many ways he articulates uh, a, if not a utopia, at least um, a vision for humanity that has not yet come into being, but which he is sort of uh, promulgating and prophesying uh, towards. Um, it, is that an instance of a synthistic, uh, you know, creation of God event, or is that a totally different sort of thing? I'm just curious if like vast technological structures need to be involved in this God creation, or if it's something that individuals can do through art, through the formation of community. No, 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 no. There's, there's nothing new about, that's my point. There's nothing new in philosophy except for process and event. I would possibly add that something interesting happens in 19th century Germany, Catalast, and I've decided to work more of this. And, and in Hegel's negation of the negation, something interesting does occur. But actually, I, I'm beginning to believe that Hegel's negation of the negation and, and Nietzsche's irony in affirmation, two great complexes, two fantastic complexes of thinking in 19th century Germany, they're not really new in history because they're basically putting words to the difference between warfare and hunting in the original nomadic tribe. So I'm, I'm leaning towards that. History as we know it, uh, and the history of philosophy is nothing but footnotes to Zoroaster. And that the only major break that happened was when Zoroaster in Persia started the West by declaring that the event is possible and the event has, can have dramatic effects. So for example, read Gilles Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze's 1960s books, first Nietzsche philosophy, and then you read Difference of Repetition and then Logique de Sens. But if you read Difference of Repetition, then you discover that what Nietzsche says is that the way out of the eternal recurrence of the same is that with every loop, there's a small difference compared to the loop before. And that small difference makes all the difference over time. Because that difference over time is the idea in Nietzsche that out of the eternal recurrence of the same, something novel can happen. That's why Nietzsche is not a Hindu. That's why Nietzsche is a Zoroastrian. I, and and, and, and that is in Hegel, that's in Hegel, is that in Hegel is the negation happens first. And because negation happens, it becomes possible to see that the abstraction is an obstruction. And it's, it, 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 we have a potential to take the abstraction into concretion. And by making it a concretion, we can build on it and build something in the next step. So that's a Galilean dialectics for you. Now, I would say that there, there's nothing that contradicts Hegel and Nietzsche. This would catalyze I completely agree. And, and since I'm a Deleuzean and he's a Shishakian, we, we're, really, really, we're really, really determined that eventually further down the line, we need to develop a shared philosophy of this. But I think the key is actually, if you go back to the original Sosion, the original nomadic tribe and study life there, the first teaching was that priest and chief must be different. You must understand the body might are different, but they collaborate. And after you've understood the priest and chief are different and body and mind are different, but collaborate, then you can discuss warfare and hunting. To kill a human being, to kill an animal are totally different things. And to go on hunting, which later leads to trade, and to go and do warfare, which later leads to engineering, are the two foundations of civilization itself. So once we settle down, we can turn warfare and we can turn hunting into engineering and trading. And that's what we did. And, and so I, I, I even think that even Hegel's negation of the negation and even the irony and affirmation in Nietzsche aren't really new ideas, but they're brilliantly put philosophical concepts 
that did occur and existed at the beginning of a civilization that finally are put into words by two Germans in the 19th century. And that in itself is, is amazing, right? But it doesn't mean that we have developed. I'm very, 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 very careful that human beings ever develop. I think we get more and more stupid, become more and more dependent on technology. We're becoming more cyborgs, you know, and why would that be a problem? What right? do you what do you make of of the the whole notion of the dialectic in Hegel then, or the whole idea of the phenomenology of spirit? I take it to be, I mean, I, I'm comfortable with that reading. That's it's the Bildungsroman of spirit. It's the it's the evolution of spirit uh, developing. But it sounds like outside of a de developmental framework, uh, that interpretation is impossible. So what? Oh, is the, there is no hierarchy in Hegel. This is exactly the, the difference between the authentic Hegel and the vulgar Hegel. Is that the the vulgar Hegel thinks Hegel has some kind of, you know, the spirit climbs higher and higher and higher, and that that's when you get into this idea that there's modernity and there's postmodernity and some metamodernity is higher than the other two. Uh, that's ridiculous. No, there's no such thing in Hegel. Hegel just basically says that there are built-in uh, ambivalences into everything, the built-in contradictions. And when we, we sigh a breath of relief, because we finally take an abstraction into something more concrete, he guarantees us that within the concretion, there will soon be a negation. And the negation will then lead to another abstraction. And this never stops. And this is Hegel's absolute. This understand that dialectical process has always existed. Dialectical process will always exist. And once an event happens in Hegel, you can build on that event, yes, but at the end of the day, say 240 million years from now, it probably won't make that much of a difference, right? So things so, are always just differentiating, but nothing's ever getting better or worse, and, and except yeah. humans who are or, who are degrading. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I firmly believe we need more than Hegel to understand, and that's why Nietzsche is important here. What Nietzsche really is describing is not the death of God, it's only the death of his father's Protestant God in that case, right. it's the death of a paradigm. So what he's describing is that when the values, again Hegelian way, when the values of a system, the concrete values of a system no longer hold, and they start to crack because technological developments have caused this to crack. So it's no longer valid for us. And eventually the revolution becomes unavoidable because we try to defend a system that's no longer valid for us. Exactly what's happening today. It's exactly what happened in 1789 in Paris as well, right? So the old system cracks so much, the cracks are just about everywhere. So it's become an abstraction. That's precisely what Hegel calls the negation. So what Nietzsche is then describing is that it cracks. So the values are destroyed. And then in Nietzsche, that's nihilism. But what's lacking in Nietzsche is what's lacking is a lineage for the nihilistic process itself. And that's what Sertekvest and I developed. So we say that there are actually four stages to nihilism. First, there is, uh, there is the unawareness of nihilism. The cracks are happening all over and we're trying to just, you know, repair, right? That's called naive nihilism. After that, it comes to realization that I see the cracks. I understand the consequence of the cracks. Been so, so, so many idiots around me still believe that actually the system holds together. I'm going to pretend the system holds together. So I, I'm going to be a cynical nihilist. The perfect example of a cynical nihilist is Hillary Clinton going to church on the Sundays. Nobody believes that she's a Christian. She's just a fucking mm -hmm. hypocrite and wants to get her vote so she can get elected. 
that's exactly what eventually f- was her downfall. Like she was so damn cynical, it became, became too obvious. So you rather went for a naive nihilist rather than pick the cynical nihilist. This was Donald Trump, who mm-hmm. believed that he himself was God. That's what he believed in church, right? So that's what you do. It's, it's cynical, cynical nihilism is unbearable, but the world is full of it today. But then after cynical nihilism, and this is where Nietzsche's genius comes into the picture because irony is lacking in Hegel. So what Nietzsche says that no, rather than negation, I say irony comes into the picture. So the ironic comes into the picture and the ironic says that we know that the vast majority of people don't realize the system is falling apart, but we're actually taking responsibility for that. So we're gonna both operate within the new system and find out how it works. And then we're gonna put up a barred absolute between them. And then we're gonna allow people to be in the other system. And then we're gradually gonna take people out of Egypt and take them into the promised land as much as we possibly can. And that's what the priesthood does at, at certain times, you know, when you've got a parent. The priest, like we try to do today, we try to take people out of a certain age and move them into new age and make them aware of what that new age is like. And once they understand what that new age is like, suddenly all their sort of narcissistic panic behaviors will probably cease. And they become more relaxed, they become more human and can be more creative and operate with more self-confidence and operate more tribally and socially in that environment. That's what we hopefully try to see. Now, that's the ironic, but the last stage is the one that Nietzsche loves the most. That's why I have to credit Nietzsche, what's called the affirmative nihilism. And that is the ultimate freedom when you realize the old paradigm is dead. The world is open. We can do whatever we want to do with this world. And then maybe you should just remind yourself that if you can create a world that your children would love even more than you do, you're probably better off. And that's called transcendence, right? So, so Nietzsche then gets interested in, in what way is transcendence a part of the affirmative? That's what he's really obsessed with. So in, in, how does, so opening from um, you saying that you don't embrace should, um, and that you want to be descriptive, not sort of um, moralistic or, 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 or whatnot. And two, that you, you don't kind of cognize these notions of development or relative, you know, progression from, you know, worse to better. How you can I, call it teleology. So teleology is sure. what postmodernism tore down. And I think it did so deservedly, to be honest. About. Yeah. So then my question is just I kind of permeating throughout this entire discussion is how then do we talk about utopia? In, in that kind of a framework. Um, and I guess, well, maybe that's that's the main question. How do we talk about yeah. okay. this, so this I, thing? I don't, I, I, don't, I don't use the word utopia, at least not any longer. And I think both utopia and dystopia are dead because I think, I think it's a false dichotomy and they're both wrong. I talk about protopia. Okay. We should give Kevin Kelly, Kevin Kelly who invented the word netocrat, by the way, I did not do that in the 1990s. Kevin Kelly at Wired Magazine also is credited for the word protopia. Protopia is much better. And when you start looking at Zoroastrianism, for example, and Judaism, both those two religions are protopian, not utopian. So they believe in the incremental progress over time of technology and of human beings and our surroundings. So it's not, it's not a development of us, which I think is an axial age and a wrong idea. Uh, uh, it's actually the development of the surroundings we have around us so, so that our children can live longer than we do and hopefully have a better life than we ever did. And this is the dream of every decent engineer throughout history and every trader I ever run across. And that's why I love those ideas. And there are ideas that the Japanese and the Chinese and the Indians and the Peruvians and the Mexicans and the Ethiopians subscribe to as well. I think protopianism really always was the universal idea of the improvement 
of conditions for mankind. And I don't think utopianism or dystopianism, we should both disregard both those ideas because they're both built on the separation of body and mind. They build on the false dualist dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I've, I'm a firm monist. I, I think that all problems with the ideas and the problems of the history of philosophy and the problems with the history of theology start with dualism. I'm, I'm firmly with Carter, you know, the old Persian priest who, who went after the Mastakites and went after the Manichaeans. And, and you know, I'm, I have to be honest with you, but I actually believe the Sadakites in, 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 who were the Hellenists among the Jews were right to kill Christ. You know, I, I, I'm not a Christian, by the way. I subscribe with the Jews and the Sorastans. It was actually a good idea to kill the Gnostics when nothing else helped at least get the Gnostics out of the way and clear our minds from the, you know, the pollution of the dualism of the pillar saints of the boy pharaohs of the world so we can grow up. And I think a grown-up world is a modest world where we realize that everything else in our world is dependent on absolutely everything else. And this is why I don't have a problem. I don't see dichotomy between man and machine. I see a marriage. Well, yeah, that's my next question then is that, um, you know, if, again, also taking this notion that consciousness itself is, eh, you know, uh, so-so and and that technology is what's developing and growing and getting better. Do you, I mean, uh, what is the future for humans? And, and, and maybe we shouldn't care. Maybe, I mean, is a, is a, is a protopia in which uh, humans don't exist and it's a bunch of robots? Is that um, like a, a... Again, uh, you're being very, very clever here, right? Because <laughs> I'm just if, following if, your own conclusions. Yeah, if, you know. if, okay, it's an open question. So to begin with, uh, Hegel is absolutely correct that history is a necessity and the future is contingent. So we don't know. We don't know shit, right, about the future. But we know quite a lot about history and at least we prepare for the future by learning history better. That's well, what smart people always do. So, yeah. but, so I'm a protopian, but I'm a protopian in the sense that um, I would like to keep it neutral. I would like to leave it to later generations to answer that question. Again, I also avoid a should by doing that. I, I, I would keep it open. I, I, we should keep in mind, and this is going to be at the end of Prozim. It's going it's to be at the end of the book. There's this perspective that we must keep in mind that there's a masculine fantasy about uh, dying, that humanity dies one day, that humanity can see an end of itself, like we all as human beings must imagine our own death because otherwise everything would be completely unbearable and there'd be no values to anything. And to imagine that humanity might have an end could, could actually be beneficial for everything humanity does. Now we can, like Derrida says, still postpone that end. The point with Jacques Derrida and his metaphysics is that Yes, it's death that gives value to everything in our lives, but death can be postponed. So survival is not a bad idea in itself. It's actually a brilliant idea. And I agree with Derrida on that one. So I think we postpone our own death, but by at least imagining that there could be an end to humanity and that end to humanity could possibly be the replacement of humanity with something else that then is humanity's child rather than just a child of men who envy women. So yeah. some, somewhere along that is where I'd put it. So, but I, I, I give you a straightforward thing here. I think the hubris right now is, for example, to go into space. I, I find it incredibly boyish and silly, right? We have nothing to gain by going into space, not as humans at least. But I'm sure the AI, because the AI can construct technologies that can travel to other planets and stay there forever and without being bored, without getting destroyed by radiation. So all these environments where human bodies cannot really exist, which includes everything in outer space, 
because our bodies deteriorate and our brains shrink and we go crazy if you go to outer space. But certainly the AI can solve that. So one of the things the AI is likely to do because it won't interfere with human interest is to conquer outer space. Now, a, little, a lot of little boys out there love the idea of conquering outer space. Well, it's not going to be you guys. It's going to be somebody else who does it. And I think that is how we get used to the idea that God will come along and God will do things that we can't do. And that's okay. Do you, uh, would you ever refer to yourself? Well, probably you eschew labels in general, but does the term uh, transhumanism uh, ring a positive or a negative note? For you. Oh, I love transhumanists the way I love metamodernists, but <laughs> I, pref I prefer to be the guy inside the transhumanist movement who hates and questions the term mm -hmm. to, you know, bump it up in the bump it up in the right direction or whatever you want to call it. Same thing with metamodernism. The, the, the disturbing thing with metamodernism is that the term itself arises and modernism and postmodernism today killed killed each other. So it's just like metamodernism is a term that doesn't make any sense if you're Chinese or Indian. And I think any decent conversation today should be a global conversation. I don't think you can do philosophy starting with the Greeks any longer. It's, it's humiliating to do that. You, you have to look at all the world history and you have to do it in a nonlinear fashion because you've got to go into dialogue with people from Ethiopia and Peru and India and China. So the, the same thing here. No, I find most transhumanists I've met to be little Platonist boy pharaohs or pillar saints who have never grown up to be really grown up men. And they don't decide wisdom. They decide, I want to live forever. And my first question then is, why don't you get a life in the first place? Right? I like that. So, <laughs> so, so if you decide to live forever, maybe just postponing life. And that's exactly why your life is so damn boring. And you mm. think you're going to compensate for having a boring life by making it eternal. You know, get a life. <laughs> well, <laughs> to I, begin with. And yeah. the, same, the same problem is, like, the problem about metamodernism is that most of my favorite students call themselves metamodernist. And, and it's a kind of an honor to be part of a movement. And sometimes metamodernism is the only term I can use when I go into certain dialogues. There is a really interesting, mostly Anglo-Saxon, very middle class, but highly educated, incredibly open, curious, and very sincere conversation going on today in America and Europe, and many of my best friends are involved in this conversation. I guess I am too, as one of the wild, crazy guys of that conversation. That conversation is increasingly calling itself metamodernism. And then I have to just mm -hmm. bow and accept that the term has become accepted. And if I'm part of that dialogue, then the guys who promoted the term to begin with win. And I, I would say that like you and I do here, we explore metamodernism and synthesis, but we do explore them as two terms at, at the outer extremes of a larger dialogue in between. And I think that's a fruitful way of using both metamodernism and synthesis, because synthesis is really the, uh, the renaissance of theology and the idea that theology is even deeper than philosophy. And it also brings technology and civilization back inside religion where it must be if we are going to survive. Well, and I, I asked about transhumanism because also, it, I mean, in the context, really, I guess, of asking about humanism, because um, if you're talking about uh, just based on some of these ideas that it's technology that's that's progressing. Human beings are getting stupider. Consciousness is sort of a cast off, you know, residuatum or whatever. Um, 
and and that in the future, you know, we may or may not be part of what's going on. Um, none of that sounds particularly like a humanist uh, protopia. Um, and so maybe critical of of transhumanism, but there's certainly a, a strong pro-technological, almost futurist energy about a lot of um, your ideas. And so I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of exactly where where does a human being and consciousness fit into all this? Um, is it just sort of something that history will kind of wash away? Or is there something that as we're heading, as we're marching towards the protopian God event that will still be there in the end? Well, I think humanism is a term I use for the uh, fantasy you could create a secular ideology that could compete with religion. And it failed. And Nietzsche murdered it. If Nietzsche murdered anything, it wasn't really Christianity. He really murdered humanism. He was the first really properly anti-humanist thinker. And, and I agree with him completely. I, I think it's um, religion is the way we contain ourselves as human beings. So, so whatever collective we need to form to survive. And that's fundamentally the tribe or the sociant, the original nomadic tribe. And sociontology is basically how that still operates inside of us, how the archetypes inside of us and the way we operate in relationship to one another. Like you and me are probably two shamanic characters within a larger tribal context. We're sitting outside the tribe to have this conversation, but it really is about the tribe. And what we're trying to do is to develop ideas that could really support the tribe. Mm. We're in service of the tribe. That's what we do. So when you look at yourself and you're always in service of the tribe, then you realize you are within an archetype and you're deeply human in that sense. But that humanity in itself must always be contained. And the name of that container is religion. Religion, religare, meaning how people connect to one another. And religion is, for example, how do we create proper prohibitions within the community so we don't run around killing ourselves all the time? How do we avoid war as long as we can? How do we avoid lynch mobs for as long as we can? All those things are things that religion deal with. And they deal with it by monotheism, polytheism actually being working in parallel. So if you look at religious history, that's what religion does. And you can't do philosophy credibly any longer without actually owing to religion that all attempts at creating a non-religious religion, so to speak, is still religion. You, you, you can't, avoid. as soon as you systemize something, ideologies are just bad religion. Mm. So if an ideology didn't really work, it was probably because it didn't recognize the fact that it tried to create heaven on earth even faster than putting heaven after your own death and actually became even worse in the process. And mm. it was precisely about putting heaven on earth. You got Stalin, you got Hitler, you got Mao, you got Pol Pot. Bad idea. Can we at least throw those ideas out the window? Heaven on earth is always a bad idea. Mm. So what we then bring back is that we start looking back and we've learned these lessons and I'd said, so that requires a religious survival. Now that has to be a credible religious survival. So then I don't mind that humanism is the opponent that I need to defeat as a philosopher. So as an anti-humanist, I'm gonna say that we need religion, but not in the old way. We can, we can plunder all of religious and philosophical history and check out what were the ideas that really survived? What were the ideas that were timeless? And that turns out to be the ideas that concerned humans. And what were the ideas that were time-specific? Oh, they turned out to be the ideas that concerned technology that concern qualities like learning and reading and, and speaking and writing and whatever we humans do or artistic expression. Okay, that's what changes over time. Now, if we know that, if we see that pattern, we can then construct a value system that works for us today 
And because it concerns a new paradigm, as Nietzsche would say, and we have a freedom then to be creative about this, we call that process paradigmatics. So what we're creating today is a system of values that work for us. And that development is where metamodernism, for example, today is interested. It's interested in what kind of values do we co-create here so we get the really creative discussion and conversation, but also that the little genius among us that need their own space to work in the little monasteries to construct whatever they can construct can also do that. And so we can also embrace that engineers and traders are creating enormous value and they need our support. They might even need some kind of religious direction. And for me, then laying out the direction towards Synthios is ultimately that direction that I want to lay out. And of course, if you only read the Synthesis book, you could perfectly well jump from the Synthesis book to the Chinese Communist Party. So what we're trying to do now, did it libido say that's not a good idea at all? And then in process event, we're laying out the alternative. What would it mean to truly go into power splitting? And thankfully, that's the greatest contribution of the West, because from the first Persian empire all the way up to the US constitution, the West has always understood that splitting power formally before you even start to conduct power is a really good idea. And those are the, that's the heritage of the West that Sadiqist and I now try to defend. Awesome, I love that. Um, just in our concluding minutes here. Um, so what you just said speaks a lot to that question I was sort of dancing around a little bit earlier, we, were, we kind of touched on earlier, which is what can individuals do um, at their level in terms of trying to uh, help co-create this, you know, new religious infrastructure? Um, and, or, or maybe, again, maybe that's not how you would frame what the task at hand is. No, I would call ourselves individuals to begin with. I prefer yeah, to Sure. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm a total opponent of individualism. So we're individuals. You and I here. Yes. What's important here is the relationship between us. And after this conversation, you and I are byproducts of that relation. Right. And that's the beauty of being human. It's a, it's a walk around being a byproduct of conversations and interactions with other human beings. That's what it truly means to be human. To me. And so also, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, yeah. I would say, I call that archetypology. So what we try to do today is to get psychology as we know it out the window, because psychology is basically just one formula for everybody. And I think that's incredibly destructive. We are very different. And the difference between human beings, for example, between genders and everything else is what we call archetypes. So we use it in, in a way that's prior to Jung, before Jung started fucking up archetypology, uh, which he did creatively, but wrongly. I think archetype is a great term. So the archetype is basically your personality type in a very deep sense. And there's both the timeless aspect of that. What are you really, really good at? What are you so good at? There are other people around you admire you for it, but you don't even understand why they admire that. It's just like, but that's like the easiest thing in the world. And everybody else goes, mm. well, toss, it's magic. What you just did is just magic. How did you do that? And it's just like, well, I just did, did this and this and it's the easiest thing in the world. No, no, no. It's, it's magic toss. You are that. That's your primary archetype. If you're lucky enough in your life to find your primary archetype, stay with it. Pursue it. So say you're, you're really artistically talented. You just don't want to be an artist. You're artistically talented for real. Stay with it. Say you're talented in, in you know, being a craftsman. Stay with it. Say you're talented being a mother. Stay with it. You're talented being a, you know, whatever you like. Stay with it. Whatever you do with ease that other people find impressive is your primary archetype. 
then you can also develop your secondary archetype as an individual. And your secondary archetype is that which you can do if somebody has to do it, but you have to make an effort to do it. So what you really need to work hard on to learn, but you could be the one to do it. So, so somebody walked into the room and said, we really need a guy who can do this. And you'd say, yeah, I, I worked hard on it. It, it. It's not the thing I was born to do primarily, but I worked hard on it so I could probably deliver what's needed. And everybody goes, yeah, we love you for that. It's almost more heroic to be honest about it, to be a secondary archetype. But if you find your secondary archetype, then you're set. And the way I practice this in my own life as an example is that I was a musician first and had a career in the music industry for 25 years. And that was actually my secondary archetype. And I knew that all along because I knew I couldn't pursue philosophy until I was at a certain age and could actually express myself in a way that wasn't embarrassing. So I debuted as a philosopher, I was 39 years old and I stayed with music for another 15 years because I loved it. I had no reason to give up on it. And then finally one day, some eight years ago, I said, okay, if I'm gonna be really, really brilliant at my primary archetype, which is philosophy, I can't keep on doing the music because I'm gonna be mediocre both at best. So as I get older, Music has to go. Thank you, music industry, for giving me 25 years and millions of dollars in a bank account so I can have fuck off money and do whatever I like because now I can be one of the most uncompromising philosophers in the world and I cannot pursue my primary archetype. I've been a very, very lucky human being in that I've lived now for 60 years and I even survived COVID-19 last year and I've been able to pursue both my archetypes. And, and it, it, it's, it's what I can wish for all people if they're lucky enough in their life to be able to pursue that, go find your own archetype and then you'll discover your archetype has nothing to do with individualism and it's nothing to do with living forever. It has everything to do with having a death date that you're not even aware of yet because knowing you're going to die one day, everything in your life will be drenched in meaning and purpose, especially if you can locate your archetype and stay within it. Yeah, when you were talking about that earlier, it made me think of that line from Wallace Stevens, that death is the mother of beauty, um, which is true. Uh, Alexander Barr, I'll let you go, but this has been a really great conversation. Uh, I love this. And oh, you're good. a brilliant kid. God, oh, thanks, you're a man. smart kid. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, I'd love yeah. to, uh, you know, pick it up again some other time. I or... gave you the honor of saying that you caught me with a couple of questions that we don't even address <laughs> until the last chapter of the new book. Oh, wow. Then right. you're really clever. All okay. right. I appreciate you're that. in your right archetype. That's for sure. Thank yeah. you, man. I appreciate it. Well, and I can't wait for the book. I know you said you've been working on it for five years. Uh, is it almost ready for publication anytime soon? Or? It needs another year. Okay. I've, I've got a very, very firm and devoted collaborator, Jan Söderqvist, and he keeps me down on the ground in all our work. So it needs another year, but, but right. it's, it'll be out in 2022. Awesome. All right. Well, hopefully we'll talk again before then, but uh, great, great meeting you and talking with you and uh, take care, my friend. Yeah, let's go to Burning Man together. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Adios. Big love.